the problem and the biggest frustration for us in this area is that while our property values have increased and, and while our market has went hot, our appraisers are still two to three years behind what the market is doing, right? I have no idea in the world what these appraisers look at right now because every single one of them is different. We've developed kind of a formula that puts us pretty close. That is right about eight, five, nine cap. Um, on these appraisers when you're looking at an income approach. Obviously, four units and below is going to continue to be the, you know, continue to be the sales comp approach. But when we're talking five and, and more, right around eight and a half to a nine. But we've had some properties that, you know, are coming in an eight cap with these appraisers. Welcome everyone to the podcast. We're joined today by Todd Poltz. He's the founder of Bottom to the Top Investments. He's got an amazing story. Uh, it's going to take us on a bit of a journey today. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. No, I appreciate you having me. Our pleasure. And we have my business partner, associate, and everything in between. Becca, how are we doing? Rep? Blah, blah. Bex, Beebs, Reeves. I know, you're, you're combining so many, so many of my Becca, names. Becca, Reba, Reba Beats. How you doing? I have so many. <laughs> good. I'm good, thank you. We'll have a little fun today. So, Todd, um, you, you currently have over 100 doors, correct? I do, yes. All right. So to get to 100 doors has been a, a, a hell of a journey for you. And, and I think it would be great if you're up for it, sharing kind of some of the story. You know, I know you've got some humble beginnings and you've, you, you've got a remarkable, remarkable story. You, you mind jumping in and giving us a little context before you got into the real estate world? Sure. I mean, so I started off in uh, law enforcement. That's what my degree is. Uh, so I started off as a police officer and, uh, that's, you know, when I started as a police officer, I started getting those checks where I was making 50, $60,000 a year. You know, I thought I was on top of the world because I came from very, very poor upbringings. You know, I lived in a trailer park and in the projects, mom and dad never had any money. Um, so when I started getting a W2 where I'm like, man, I can pay some bills. I can actually buy a car. Like that was like the end all be all to me. Um, but I realized at a certain point in my life that, um, I never had the skills to manage money, right? Like I didn't know what to do with my checks. Like I was spending more money than what I was making. So no matter what I would have done at that point, no matter how much money I would have made from a W2 job, I didn't have any of the resources um, from an educational standpoint to figure out how to manage my finances. Um, so that led me to when I was in my relationship uh, at the beginning, which is now my wife, you know, my car was repossessed from her driveway. My house was foreclosed on like all within the first couple of months of her and I being together, which led to some embarrassment. And it was kind of at that moment where I said, you know what, I need to figure this out. Like I need to figure out how to create, you know, financial freedom. And at that time there was like videos that were out, there was internet was kind of big, but we didn't have the big digital social media push like we do now with all the real estate gurus and things like that. But there was one thing that I knew, which was um, <clears throat> that real estate made sense to me. And when I listened to people, if you made a thousand dollars in rent, you paid out 500, you made $500. And that clicked for me. You know, I didn't see myself as like super educated or like a really smart guy. Like I couldn't go be a neurosurgeon or something like that. Um, but I understood real estate. It was simple enough for me. And I took my $10,000, which was the last $10,000 that I had for my police retirement fund. And I went to one of my mentors, um, my only mentor, but my mentor at the time. And I said, hey, I'm going to buy a four-year apartment building for 20000 bucks. Will you give me $10,000 and let's partner on together? Now, this was 2011, so the market was completely different than what we see now. So as you listen to this podcast, you're like, what do you mean you're going to buy a $20,000 like quad, right? Mm -hmm. Well, one, we were in the Midwest. Two, it was a completely different market. And a lot of properties were bought from the housing bubble crash. Um, 
and people were failing on those properties because they bought a lot of cheap properties across the country, but they didn't have any mechanisms in place to, to manage those. So some of the people that tried to capitalize originally were starting to lose some properties again. <clears throat> so I found one and it was a really quirky deal, but I found a four unit building that was listed for like 60,000. Uh, I ended up just trying to practice my negotiation skills and found out it was a little guy that had it on land contract and had never paid the original owner money. Um, so we sidestepped him, went to the original owner who was in Iowa and said, Hey, if we give you 20,000 and get rid of this guy, that's on land contract to you, we, we let us buy your property. And, uh, he said, yeah. So we offered the land contract guy a thousand bucks if he walked away and, uh, he said, okay. So we ended up buying that first quad for $21,000. And that was like the start of the real estate journey. And then kind of, I wouldn't say it was luck because I think you always have to be in the right place, the right time to get luck. And I think the harder you work, the luckier you get. Right. But I would say there was a little bit of luck by the position that I was in that my mentor at the time had 31 doors and he was a horrible landlord. One of the smartest business guys I've ever met in my life. Still one of my um, you know, best friends in the world right now. I looked to him for all kinds of business advice. But the one thing that he wasn't good at was um, being a landlord. So he had this property that he had bought during the housing crisis, uh, super cheap. And it was 31 doors, all apartments, you know, tries and quads. And I went to him and asked him to owner finance me with, with zero money down. And um, he agreed. So, you know, I, I, I really quickly got into 35 doors uh, within that first year. And uh, in between there, I had found a second property uh, that was a six unit apartment complex for like $22,000 we bought. And then three days after we bought it, it burned to the ground. We didn't have any insurance. So one really successful deal. Very next deal, I lost double the money that we had paid for the quad. Um, and then the third deal was an owner finance deal. And that's what kicked it off. Um, so that was the start of my journey. But being able to build doors, that didn't happen until a few years later. Once I started educating myself and learning how to use money and how to leverage and you know how to build partnerships and kind of network and find off-market deals, um, so I had a little bit of a gap in there to where I went from being like really comfortable to where like now I can break loose and now I can break through the ceiling and we just haven't looked back now. We've used all that as momentum to keep rolling. So you're out of Dayton, Ohio, correct? We are. Yeah. Riverside, Ohio, which is a little suburb that borders up to Dayton. Okay. And are these doors that you're taking down in that immediate area or are you all over? Yeah, I stay local. So I don't invest out of state. Um, I stay pretty true to my neighborhood. Uh, we, we have so many properties out here. And I think when investors come out here, you know, some of my clients that come out, um, they're always impressed by how many apartment doors we have, how many quads we have, how many triplexes we have. It's just one of those unique areas. And Dayton is kind of just now starting to catch on, you know, so for a long time, when you look at bigger pockets and you read all the forms that are out there, nobody talked about Dayton, like, like, hey, we're running all of our stats. Well, if you run all your stats, like all the gurus tell you to do, Dayton will never pop on the top places to invest. And you guys have probably seen all those lists that are out there. People put out like, hey, here's the top places in the US to invest. Dayton's never on there. It's not. But it is a phenomenal, phenomenal place. And if you're looking for cash flow and you're looking to replace W2 money, like this is the place. Dayton, Ohio is where it's at. And I have no reason to invest outside of Dayton. Like there's too much here for me to do. And when I think that like the inventory is drying up for me from an off-market standpoint, I get pounded by a bunch more off-market deals. So I've just never had any reason to. So uh, I'm curious about the numbers, right? And, you know, emerging markets is, is all the rage, as you, as you mentioned before, right? Everyone's got a list and everyone's got their, their own metrics in identifying a market. Uh, but, you know, if you could walk me through a typical four family or five or six, whatever, uh, strike prices now versus when you started. I'm really interested in 
what the delta is, uh, and what is the typology, one bedrooms, two bedrooms, three bedrooms, what do the rents look like? Where do people work? Could we kind of run down one of your deals just to get a flavor of it? Yeah, so I think, you know, when you look at 2011, the first deal I had, we bought that for 21,000. It was fully rented out for like 350 a unit, all one bedrooms. Um, we had to stick about 12,000 into it to turn because we quickly, as we started raising rents, we, you know, we had vacancies. So all in on that one, we were like 32, $33,000. And that was for a fully rented quad. And at the time, 375 was about the right rent. Um, and that was 2011. So those same quads right now, if you're looking at rents, we're renting out from 625 to 650 for a one bedroom quad. Um, and that is in a C-class neighborhood or maybe even C minus, depending on how you look at it. You know, for me and Dayton, uh, they're all C properties, you know, it just depends on how you manage them. But those quads right now are hitting our market on the MLS at 175, 185, 195. So for all of us that bought a bunch of quads back in the day, we're like, what in the world? Like, I can't bring myself to buy an MLS quad right now. Like, I just couldn't do it. Um, I would be nauseous and unable to sleep at night if I did it. But uh, we still find off-market deals. So our off-market deals right now, when we're driving for dollars, uh, we're still getting into quads that are fully rented, um, maybe low rents, older owners. We're still getting into them around $75,000, $80,000. And we can push the rents very quickly because most of them don't ever have leases in place. Uh, we can push the rents, like I said, to 625, 650, 675 in some of our areas if we have central air in them or things like that. Um, most of the quads are going to be one bedroom. Our two bedroom quads don't really change in price. And in our area, a lot of investors come to me and they all, they're always against one bedroom quads. But what they don't realize is Dayton is a market uh, with a very large single population that needs one bedroom quads. You have a lot of single mothers. Um, you have a lot of people that are just trying to get into some, some units. And we have a lot of subsidies in the area, not just Section 8, but mental health subsidies and developmental disability subsidies that they're like 90% single bedrooms. So I have a waiting list upon waiting list for one bedroom apartments. The two bedrooms tend to be a little bit harder to rent out. And the thing that I don't like about them is there's not a huge gap, right? Like we're like 725 to 750 in rent. So you don't have a huge, huge gap between mar you know, uh, the margins on the rents. Uh, so those are pretty typical numbers right now. Now we're buying retail quad for a lot of our clients that we represent from a realtor standpoint. And we can get them for 140, 150, 160, depending on the building. But that's pretty much where everybody's, uh, where everybody's buying at right now. So I'm, I'm curious, Becca, in your home market, rent wise, are one bedrooms in that $600 range? Is it is it a similar market? Well, or is it closer to what we, we do here? It depends on which part of the state you're talking about. Where I am, it's a little bit closer to what we do here in New York, but the southern part of the state is right around those numbers. So, you know, for for us, um, and, and I hear this all the time, people say, well, you know, you, you can kind of launch a career uh, in in investing in multifamilies, but, but you can't do it in New York anymore because it's been just become so expensive. You know, we're in Staten Island and that's the the off borough. Right, you know, we're we're not Manhattan, we're not Brooklyn, we're not even Bronx or Queens, uh, but we've got some buildings where one bedrooms are twenty one hundred a month. Sure. Um, you know, and and that's cheap compared to some of the the other markets surrounding us, but there is opportunity between the lines. So you guys are approaching this from a are you like buying a payment? Or are you buying for the appreciation as well? When when you're, you know, you have like a standard set of metrics that you're going through when you pro forma a deal? 
Yeah. I mean, so mine's pretty simple. You know, I know everybody, especially my young investors that I mentor, they, they send me these Excel sheets that have like 75 categories. And I'm like, look, I'm not reading it. Like I'm not doing it. Like take it back to bigger pockets. Like I'm done with it. Okay. So like, here's for me, I'm a simple dude, man. Like how much rent, what's my expenses and am I making money? Right. So for me, my target, okay. My target on a quad is I want to be able to true cash flow a thousand bucks a month. That's kind of what my number is. And if I can truly cash flow a thousand bucks a month on that quad, um, then I'll do the deal. And that's on the low end. Like I like to be a lot higher. Um, but that's, that's kind of my bottom line when I'm doing deals. Now that's slowed me down a little bit over the last year, uh, mainly because I'm not buying a lot of quads. I mean, we're, we're buying larger multifamily right now. Um, and I'll give you an example of a good large multifamily. And when I say large, I just mean, you know, more than, more than eight, 16 units. Um, but even February 28th of 2020, um, cause I have another multifamily business that I have a partner in, you know, my, I have a close to 200 doors that I have personally. Um, my partner though, in a multifamily business, we have around hundred doors together too. And he was originally from Reno, Nevada. We kind of hooked up through a fluke. Um, but we started buying together last February of 2020. And the first deal we did was a 21 in unit, uh, apartment complex fully rented. All the rents were like three, 350 bucks, all one bedrooms. C minus near, you know, neighborhood. Um, but we bought that for $298,000. And to date, we've only had to stick in about $35,000, which is just turning units and updating, um, updating things. And not only do we buy it for 298, the hard money lender at the time, uh, who was already on that property with the client trying to sell it, uh, he had lost because the guy defaulted on it. So he was losing money on this little, you know, read deal he had set up for hard money. So he actually funded us so he can make some interest back. And he gave us a 90% loan on it. Uh, so we literally had to come up with like 32,000 to close, which we loan, you know, off of uh, one of our private money persons. And uh, we've stuck, you know, another 30,000 into it. And that building just now is appraised over $700,000. We have all the rents at 625. And it's a, it's a kick-ass deal, man. And it's, those are the type of properties that we find here in this area. And it's not just Dayton. Like I hear it all over the Midwest. Um, this is a cash flow market. If you're looking for high appreciation, if you're looking for LA appreciation, if you're looking for New York appreciation, like this is not the market for you. Um, this last year where our markets went crazy, like all of us were like in wow, because we never bought these properties banking on appreciation. It was always just the cash flow. Right. Um, and that's kind of my strategy is cash flow. So uh, your debt service, you're taking some of these down with hard money lenders. Uh, what's the strategy? Are you, you holding them for a year, two years and selling, or are you refining out, refi cashing out? What, what's, you know, in a perfect world, how, how are you, you stabilizing these things after that hard money burns off? What, what's that, what's that pretty trending word that they, they made, uh, burr, 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 burr. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, that word they made after many of us were doing it for years. Yeah. Um, so that's just what we do. You know, we, we cash out, refinance out of these properties, you know, like I bought, um, like 15 doors a couple of weeks ago. And I just use, we have some, we have a really good local uh, hard money lender here. He'll fund a deal within seven days. So I typically just to get into a deal and get the deep discount, I will close it with a hard money loan pretty quickly. Um, and then I'll just cash out refinance. You know, we have some local credit unions that they'll do it without any seasoning whatsoever. So we have a really good lending situation. Um, but I'll tell you one of the things that I started doing, and this is when I really started understanding money is all the profits I was making. And I sold one, that initial apartment complex that uh, I got on the owner finance deal was zero down. Um, I originally bought that for like 400,000 bucks from the guy, never put a cent into it because the owner financed all of it. 
Um, I rehabbed it, got the rinse up. It got hit by a tornado in 2019. I did another million dollar rehab on that property with zero of my own money. But what I did at that point, and I, I don't even remember who I heard on the internet, but they were talking about how to basically lend yourself money. And they talk about the health insurance, you know, your, your life insurance policies and things like that. And I thought to myself, well, I can do something like that. So at that time, I took all of my insurance money that I got, which at the time was a cash payout because they allowed me to GC the project. And it was like right at a million dollars. I stuck all that into a diversified portfolio. And during that economy, I was banging like 15% returns, right? Because we were in just a, a crazy economy. So then my portfolio allowed me to loan myself 60% of my principal back to myself at 4% um, without paying it back until I wanted to. And my principal never changed, right? So I'm still banging 15%. I'm loaning myself money at 4%. I'm still making 11% on my money. Um, and I had 12 months rent loss on that property. So I took the entire 12 months to rehab that property because why would you put renters back in there uh, and get the headache when you can just take 12 months? And that's what I did. So I didn't spend any of my insurance money. I kept that all in a diversified portfolio and just loaned myself the money at 4%. Um, and then I sold that property at the end of, 2020, right after I got the complete rehab done, I sold that property for about 1.5 million. Um, and then I paid my loan back to myself, which was like about 600,000. I kept the profits. So that's kind of what I do too. If I don't use a hard money lenders, I'll use one of those types of strategies to loan myself money from one of my other, you know, money pools. And uh, then we just cash out refinancing, you know, a couple of weeks later. Okay. So uh, covered a lot of ground there, uh, folks. The, the life insurance- Sorry. Um, piece that Todd's talking about. We actually just did yeah, this did. Uh -huh. uh, and took money out of uh, some whole life policies. It's a great tool. It, it's, uh, you know, if those of you who are familiar with it understand, and those of you who are not, I, I really recommend you get familiar with it. It's a, it's a slow, long burn. Uh, I started my policies back when I was 19, 20 years old, uh, and it allows you to almost instantly pull down cash from your policies, your your death benefit and everything still stays in place uh, at a very reasonable interest rate. And it allows you to, without having to go through the, the, the process of traditional financing, you can pull this money down. I think we the money hit the account in 48 hours, yeah. if, if that, right? Yeah, I don't um, think You know, you, you underwrite it, you, you attribute an interest rate on top of the rate you have to pay back. You use it to fund your deal and then you pay it off and you can continue to hit this yeah. thing as often as you like. It's, it's ended up being one of the, the better things I did when I was young. Cause I, I didn't do many things good when I was young. That was, that was <laughs> one of the things that, that did work out for me. Um, you also talked about no seasoning and I just wanted to explain for the audience what that meant. So uh, many times when you're buying a deal um, and you close uh, a bank wants you to season the property. They want to see you in the property and, and see the property performing. I've seen seasoning as low as six months. I've seen seasoning as high as 12, maybe 18 months. So you're saying you found a credit union that's not requiring any seasoning. Yeah. So what we found with lenders, and we've done a ton of research, right? And it was a, a and you've probably experienced it yourself. It's a very painful process to find lenders that you can create a relationship with. Mm -hmm. that you can go to, right? So like I have a hundred hard money lenders that I can go to, but it's like, yeah, kind of like a toss up game, whether they yeah. can actually close the deal pretty quickly, right? Yep. So for us, we're very fortunate. I finally found a local, local one that underwrites their own deals for the hard money. But from a commercial standpoint, what I always found was that the commercial lenders, even today, I sent one off to a commercial lender 
Um, and I have like eight properties and I'm like, Hey, I want to, you know, I want to refi these, you know, whatever. And I forgot that they require seasoning. So basically their terms were that you have to have it for at least three months. And if you have it for less than six months, but greater for three, they'll allow you to take 120% of the purchase price or 75% loan to value, whichever one is lower. Right. So you're not truly cash out refinancing that property. Right. And then if you've had it for six months or more, um, and you've been able to season those rent rolls, then they'll allow you to take, you know, 75, you know, percent of the new appraised value. So that's what we kept running into. And it was always a brick wall. And I just happened to like call a local credit union. I'm like, Hey, do you guys do any rental properties? And they're like, yeah, we got a whole division for it. Like, where you been, you know? And, uh, we started working with them and I didn't know how it was going to go. So one of my clients that I had bought a 10 unit for, well, they bought it, you know, I was a realtor on it. I said, Hey, won't you try these guys out and let me know how it goes. And they closed a deal in less than like 30 days with zero hiccups. And I'm like, okay, you got like, you got a new fan. Like I'm all in. Right. And uh, we've been sending them all kinds of deals. And matter of fact, that same credit union is taking down a hundred unit deal um, for us right now. That's going to be a 1.5, $1.7 million rehab in one of our C-class areas. Um, so they've been phenomenal. And we have two or three credit unions, but the, when I talk to people around the country, I find that to be kind of a typical trend, right? Is that credit unions are tending to work with people a little bit more than the regular banks and everybody's having success with them, you know, and we're getting, you know, and I'll just give you, and I don't want to go too far on the deep end, but like on this rehab deal, not only are they funding the deal, they're funding the construction loan piece of it too, just like a hard money lender, but we're still getting 3.85% on the entire deal right off the bat, right? We're not paying like the high interest on the construction and we only got to pay the interest with the money as we use it, which is typical. Um, but they're giving us great rates right off the bat, even if the property is not stabilized. So um, these are like true, no seasoning, like no conditions. You know, it's like, it's really cool. And we're very fortunate to run into those. But I would imagine that everybody could find one of those lenders in their area um, if they just do a lot of research. Yeah, they, they, they may be able to find them, but it's, it's surprising to me how often people don't go find that right institutional partner, right? There's... Yeah it's the, the absolute difference between really making it and being secure and, and not, you know, you, you, the, the last thing I wanted to touch on going backwards and then we can start going forward again <laughs> is you, you had said that the, the property now appraised for 725,000 that you had uh, initially acquired. What is the standard kind of cap rates? Uh, is that the methodology that they're using? Are they using standard cap rates to determine these values? Well, I would like to think so. And, um, you know, when I, when I mentor uh, and, and talk to clients out of state, um, I would love to be able to tell them that's what happens. The, the problem and the biggest frustration for us in this area is that while our property values have increased and, and while our market has went hot, um, our appraisers are still two to three years behind what the market is doing, right? So I have no idea in the world what these appraisers look at right now because every single one of them is different. So we've developed kind of a formula that puts us pretty close. And um, that is right about an eight, eight, five, nine cap um, on these appraisers. When you're looking at an income approach, obviously four units and below is going to continue to be the, you know, continue to be the sales comp approach. But when we're talking five and, and more, right around eight and a half to a nine. Um, but we've had some properties that, you know, are coming in an eight cap with these appraisers. So it really just depends. We still have a ton of appraisers that are not true commercial multifamily appraisers. Um, you know, we're, we're waiting sometimes 40, 45 days for an appraisal. So that still becomes a, a huge frustration for us, even in this area, 
Um, but if I'm giving you a number, that's pretty close to what we're seeing right now. Got it. Can, um, I just want to ask about the, the mentoring that you mentioned. So is it mentoring? Is it coaching? And how did you get started doing that? I, you know what, I, I will tell you the first, there was a couple that came to me that I known for many years and they uh, are both, one's a retired homicide detective. The other one is still currently um, a detective with Felonious Assault uh, Division here locally. And they came to me like a year ago and uh, just said, Hey, like we see what you're doing and we would love for you to kind of help us a little bit, you know, get us rolling. And I said, sure. You know, we sat at my kitchen table and that was almost a year ago. And I enjoyed having that conversation with them. And at the end of that conversation, I remember his wife asked me a question. She, she said, all right, Todd, let's, let's really get down to it. She goes, what do you get out of all this? Like, what's your motive? And I thought to myself, I'm like, what do you mean? Like, what's my motive? Like, what, like, right. I like you guys, right? <laughs> like, I want to help you guys. And, but what that told me was, is that there's so many people out there that they expect something in return. Right. Yeah. And when I saw them have their first success and like, I could do a whole nother podcast on the success they're having because they are killing it. Right. Like way better than what I did when I started. But when I, when I saw that first success that they had, like that gave me some fulfillment and I'm like, you know, I need to do more of this. So I started kind of quietly offering that out, but time is money, right? So we have to charge a little bit. And sometimes the payment for coaching and mentoring comes in the form of me partnering on deals. Sometimes it just comes in the form of like, Hey, you pay me for my time. But, um, you know, that, that kind of started, it's been a little bit of a slow process. I'm not out there pushing it. I'm not, you'll, you'll never see me advertising for it. Um, but I have people that just organically come to me and want their help or want my help. And, and I do that and I like it and I enjoy it. And I love seeing others be successful. So, um, I won't keep on, you know, I have about two or three people that I'll mentor at a time. And that's like my cap. I don't, I don't go any further than that. So what, what was, I mean, obviously the, you know, the, having the hard times is, is, uh, certainly incentive enough to try and uh, take this step, but you've taken like a quantum leap here. Uh, what was there anything in, in, the, in your past or uh, a mentor or you know, someone in the family that was in like, why did you land in real estate? Like, you know, how, how did you go from being in financial trouble and going through what you went through to, Hey, I'm going to start taking down, you know, four unit quads, you know, on the side. <laughs> was it just did it just happen literally like that? Or was there some influence that brought you to real estate or? I mean, it, it, it kind of just happened like that, but I, there was one thing. Okay. So, and James, I think you and I are like pretty close in the same age. I won't ask you to share with everybody how old you are, but I think we're pretty close <laughs> in age. Okay. And uh, because of that, I think you'll remember what I'm getting ready to say. Do you remember Carlton sheets? Sure. Okay. So that was like the first time I heard about real estate staying up late at night. And I saw the infomercial on TV and I did what a lot of people did. I was like, I ordered the videos. I'm like, I'm all in. Like, I want to be free. I want to be rich. And those videos <laughs> sat in my house and I never watched them. And <laughs> when my house got foreclosed on, I was so unorganized. I was so not with it and, and just not taking care of my, you know, my finances. Um, I went over the night before they were going to come take that property over from the sheriff's auction to get whatever I could out, right? Like I took two hours and I gathered whatever I could. And I remember seeing right at the last minute that box of Carlton sheet videos. I didn't take them with me, um, but I remember seeing those. And like, it just stuck with me. I'm like, you know, I wasted that money. And, and then when I, when my car got repossessed and I'm thinking about what can I do, I kept going back to the fact that I didn't, I, I didn't have anything else. Like I, my degree was in law enforcement. That's what I knew. And I was making six figures, okay? So I was making good money, but 
there was nothing else I knew. Like I didn't have, I, I didn't have a machine. I didn't know how to work on cars. I, there was nothing else that I knew at that point, other than sports. I was always an athlete and I just kept coming back to real estate. Like, okay, I, I gotta be able to make this work. Right. Like this is the only thing that I even know about outside of that. I was so kept in a bubble growing up my mom and dad, like they, they didn't have any other resources, right? Like all I knew was my dad worked three jobs. He worked at a speedway, he worked at Myers, he was a truck driver. He got fired job after job after job, always bouncing around. So I just, I never had anybody give me those skills. And I was never in those circles of people that were entrepreneurs or anything. Um, so the only thing that I ever crossed my mind was real estate. And I didn't know if it would work or not. And I just, just kind of jumped in, you know, that was it. I mean, it really just happened like that. There was nothing else that influenced me outside of uh, maybe the Carlton sheet videos that I never watched. Well, <laughs> That's you aren't missing anything because I also <laughs> ordered those many, 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 many moons ago. Oh, so I think that's pretty funny. And I'm 46, by the way. Oh, yeah, we're, we're close. If you didn't, I was going to yeah, throw that, sneak that right in there. Yeah. Uh, we're close. Um, we're close. Todd, on your social media, you talk about being intentional. Um, what does that look like for you? Yeah. So I think, you know, I really, that's, that's like an everyday thing for me, you know, and mm -hmm. that was one of the things I had to force myself to do because first of all, there's one thing that I know in this business, which is that females are much better than males in almost everything we do in life. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to jump on the sword Good and I'm going to do it. All right. <laughs> well uh, females are much more organized. Females are on point, like most of the time, right? Like I'm making a very broad statement, but that's usually what, what I experience. Okay. Even in law enforcement, the females were phenomenal investigators And that first couple that I'm mentoring right now, his wife, she's much better than him. And I tell him all the time, she is like a bulldog, right? And the name of their company is actually Pitbull Properties, but she is like crazy at it. Like so, so good. And, and I said to myself all the time, I'm like, what do I have to do to be like a female? Okay. Um, and I meant that just by being organized and get things together. And I knew that I had to be intentional. So when I, every week I look at what I need to do for the week. And, you know, especially now that I work on my own, I have no W2, like it, it, I'm either successful or I don't provide for my family. That's the options. So I know that every single week I got to do the same things to set myself up and continue to build that pipeline. <clears throat> so that means I wake up in the morning and I, um, I'm not going to lie to everybody and say, I wake up at 5.30 and 6 a.m. Because I hear too many people say that. I wake up whenever the hell I want to because I can. And, but when I wake up, I check my emails, I check the deals, I run through off-market things, I run through whatever the wholesalers do. And then I plan out my day and I make sure that um, I knock my priorities out. Anything that's going to be like harder for me, those are the things I take care of first thing in the morning. Um, and I make sure that every week I'm driving for dollars. I make sure that every week, um, you know, that I'm, that I'm spending time with the people that I'm mentoring, that I'm coaching. But I have a plan every single week and I'm very intentional with those actions. And when it comes to deal finding, I'm very intentional with those. Like every day, I want to make sure that I'm finding at least 10 properties even if it's the busiest day of the week that I can put in my phone and I can research, you know, later on. Um, but I also carry that into my family life and I want to be very, very intentional with my family too, because it's easy to neglect our family when we're in real estate and we're, you know, we're grinding and we're hustling and I have a very addictive personality when it comes to um, success and um, closing deals. And I can get caught up in that. So I have to constantly force myself to be intentional with my family and make sure that I'm slowing down at night, which I don't, I'm not always successful at, but make sure that I'm slowing down and I spend time with the family and spend time with the kids and make sure my family knows that I love them because there's times where I'm home and I'm just not really home. I'm still working, you know, or I'm, I'm still grinding away. And uh, that's a conversation we have all the time, which is 
uh, you're always working. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm home every single night. It's like, no, you're always working. I'm like, okay, I need to be intentional with that. So I just try to do that with business and that. And there's other things that I do too. Like I'm very intentional about trying to reach out to people on social media, like make a comment on somebody's post Mm -hmm. or make sure I like something or just let them know that I'm watching what they're doing. Because I think that's easy is to expect people to like your stuff and expect people to follow you. Um, but yep. not give any of that back, right? So I'm I'm very intentional oh, yeah, about right. you know living givers gain. So mm-hmm. so <clears throat> there's so many common I know. threads in in the the folks that we have on the show that we all seem to share the same good and and bad mm-hmm. habits, and we all have these similar journeys. So as you started, you know, making the transition, knocking it out of the park, uh, and and. I thought it was over a hundred doors. You're over 200 doors personally now. So what did that scale look like and and infrastructure look like? You know, can you talk us through, um, you know, maintenance and sourcing tenants and doing background checks and uh, sourcing the deals? Uh, Have you scaled the operation? Are you still trying to run it, you know, uh, as an individual? How did this all come together? Yeah. So I'm, I am glutton for punishment and um, I, I didn't know where my limit was at managing properties because I still manage all of our properties. I also manage, you know, close to 400 doors for other investors with our property management group. And I'm very hands-on. Like I treat investors' properties like they're my properties. Um, So I've been very fortunate. I have three crews that work for me. They've been with me for five, six years. Um, You know, they do my rehabs. They they do maintenance. I got a head maintenance guy. Like they all work directly for me and I'm the only one they work for. They do side work and things like that but I'm very fortunate that I've had those crews. So for me, a lot of times it was just organization. It wasn't until, you know, several months ago where I said, okay, I need a personal assistant. (laughs) And, and I hired a personal assistant. And then right after I hired that personal assistant, what I found was, is that as I started giving off just what I thought was small tasks that could come off my plate, I found out that I overwhelmed him very quickly. And when I overwhelmed him, um, I could see the stress that I was putting on him. Right. And like, that was never my goal. It's like, I don't want anybody to feel the stress that I have. Like nobody has to carry my weight. Um, I'll carry my own weight, but I can't do that to my employees. So I, I figured out, okay, I need to hire some more people. Right. So, you know, from a realtor standpoint, I started bringing in some realtors on my team that I could dish off my clients to that weren't ones I was going directly handle. Um, I've hired a property manager. Now I'm looking for another property manager now. So we're, we're scaling the operational piece of it. Um, because I'm finally at the point where I'm like, okay, I'm not Superman. I can't do this anymore. And I can't keep running and grinding as hard as I am. Um, but because I was fortunate with having my own teams that did all the work for me, that stopped me from hiring other people to do a lot of other things because I didn't have to manage those as closely as what maybe some people do. So um, we're continuing to scale right now. I'm building a brand new office and I'm trying to hire people, but I don't. I, I probably don't need to tell you guys that hiring people at this moment, at this time, in this year, is the hardest thing that I'm doing in my business. Uh, it's just, it, it, it feels impossible sometimes to hire the right person. So can I offer you a little tip? You can offer me a bunch of tips if it's gonna help me hire some people and scale that. So we struggled with that as well. And I'll push you know this off to Becca because she's done such an amazing job that she brought in these VAs and I didn't even know they were operating in key roles in my company and yeah. they were. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what you've kind of uncovered here. Yeah, sure. Especially for those like admin tasks that can be done that, 
you don't need to worry about and deal with. I just handed, like James said, I started handing these little tasks off and things were coming into his emails and he was getting reminders and just little <laughs> things. And he's like, wait, who is this? <laughs> but it was the most seamless um, transition and introduction into the company. And they have been phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And they're doing like the whole gamut, right? They're doing yeah, editing. We, yeah, we've got them, you know, doing editing, doing blog posts. Um, one I work. have answering the phones. Yeah, phone work. Yeah, phone. It's amazing. They they can handle anything and everything, and they've got such a great work ethic. So it's it's really been a great experience. I was us. so dead set against against it. He was. <laughs> um, just because I'm stupid, but you know, there's a whole world, literally, of people out there mm -hmm. that are not. Uh, looking to be paid to stay home. These these folks uh, are working at an extraordinarily reasonable rate. Yep. They're dying to do their job every day. They mm -hmm. send full, I started getting these emails yeah, at the end of the day of the all of the things that they did <laughs> and challenges they encountered. And, you know, it, yeah. if, if you have an opportunity and certainly you could speak to Becca about it, the virtual assistants are the real deal. If you get the right ones, they've helped us immensely. Tremendously, yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at them. I've been on so many VA sites and, and I've, I've felt overwhelmed by the information that was out there. I'm like, okay, so I can't figure out which is the right one. So I'm just not going to do any of it. I'll and point you in the right direction. Yes, don't worry. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay, and, awesome. and that becomes important. You know, like we're, uh, we're getting ready to acquire a new, a new company here coming up. And I'm like, okay, I got to figure this out. Right. Like, cause it's a completely different world than, than real estate. Mm -hmm. um, kind of still falls within real estate, but I, yes, I'm game. I'm on board. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll chat after. <laughs> Absolutely. So where is this ship headed, Todd, out in your neck of the woods? What, you know, give me a, a forecast of what do you see over the next few years in the market? Well, I'd say, yeah, I, I, I wish I had the crystal ball. Um, but what I see right now is that I see our market is cooling off a little bit. Um, but in our area with the Midwest, when I say cooling off, that is still hotter than we've ever seen it. Um, I don't see the multifamily business stopping at all, right? And I think what's driving that, I, I, I don't believe there's going to be a crash. I don't believe that we're going to have some crazy housing bubble. Um, I just don't think that people are over leveraged the same way they were back in the first crash, right? Um, but what I think is coupling that is I have so many clients come to me with 1031 money and um, other profits that they made from sales that they have to dump somewhere, right? And um, they're just begging for properties and they're overpaying for properties. And when I say overpaying, they're still they're still returning, you know, good, but they're paying way more than we would have before. So I don't see the multifamily business slowing down. Um, that's continuing to bang out, and we haven't seen that cool off at all, especially in our area. Um, I do really have um, a strong gut that this single family market is, is going to come slowing down pretty quickly here. And we're starting to see that right now. I don't think it'd be what we saw before. Um, but there's going to be some huge opportunities out there for people. And I keep telling the young investors that come to me for help, um, be patient, be patient. There's some opportunities that are coming. Uh, so I don't know. I don't, you know, we'll, we'll see. Are you working with these 1031 investors that are not uh, located centrally? Or are there folks from out of city, state, county that are looking to invest there? Yeah. So, you know, one of our largest investor areas is California. We have so many California investors that come to Ohio and specifically Dayton. And I think what happens, you know, and I've in different businesses that I've been in over the years, is it's, you know, once you, once you get into a certain population, okay, 
Um, you know, like my mentor, for example, when he was at the police department, he created like the whole Hispanic coalition and um, neighborhood reach out with between the police department and the Hispanic community um, in the city of Dayton. So the rest of his life, like we got all the security business, we got like anything they had going on. Like if it was a Quincy Arena, like I had a limo business at one point, like I got all the Quincy Arenas, uh, you know, and, and all of their events. Like once you get into a certain population, a certain culture and they trust you, like then you get flooded with those people because they, they talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think we, we had some California investors come in a couple of years ago and they started having some success. And there's a very small group of realtors and property managers that are really just banging it out here. And we're a very close knit family. Um, so we've been flooded with California investors and they, you know, I get two or three calls from people out of state, you know, mainly from California. Uh, one of my largest clients is right up with you in New York. Um, they're some really great guys, but they're right up there in New York. And they came to me about a year and a half ago. Uh, we met on bigger pockets, uh, just, you know, kind of shooting the breeze and they become one of my largest clients, but I hear the same stories about what's happening in the New York area and, and how much they're paying, or they'll send me a quad that comes on the market or, you know, six unit. And I'm like, what do you mean you're paying a million dollars for a four unit building? Like what in the world? And they're like, no, that's cheap, man. Like that needs full rehab. I'm like, get out of here. Yeah. So the, uh, the regulatory threats and the legislative threats, uh, we've been banging this drum for a long time now, uh, telling everyone that we can, we do a lot of work with family offices and some, some big investors that it's, there's no sign of it stopping. It's, it's very difficult to, apply logic to what's happening here. I understand the intention of some of the legislation and I agree in in the intention, but in the implementation, it is just an absolute utter mass exodus out of New York. You know, we have uh, folks now, uh, one in particular who's a business partner and, and, yeah. and a friend and a client, um, there's six or $7 million in exchange and opportunity zone money sitting in an account um, and we just can't rationalize pulling another trigger here. Yep. Uh, the challenge for us becomes when we go to another market, how big do we have to go, right? At what point does the scale yeah. make sense? We don't want to buy 24 families, right? It seems at least not being their boots right. on the ground, logistically, exactly. it feels hard to make sense of how would that work, right? So yep. uh, do you have any advice for, for folks like us that, that are involved with people that are looking to, to pull that trigger, you know, wh- where do you start and, and how much density do you need to really make these things pencil out? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it depends on how much money they got to get rid of. Right. So, you know, and that's um, for, for me, we have, and we have a, we have a huge um, Israeli population. Okay. That uh, has come to us in Dayton, Ohio. And I don't know how it started. I know that I got a couple clients and then a couple of my friends got a couple clients and now we have like this entire group, right? And they all have different strategies, but we're buying properties for them and they just kind of land on Dayton, Ohio. But it, it really depends on how much money, you know, like where we struggle at right now is if you came and you said, hey, I need a value add multifamily for two, $3 million. Probably not happening. And if we find it, I'm probably going to buy it. Right. Um, because that's one of the areas that we struggle in. So if you come, like we have, we have a lot of hedge funds that come here. You know, we work with one right now, uh, myself and another realtor that works side by side with me. Uh, and we have their criteria, we have their buy box and we just go out and we find it. We, we pound it off market. We, we find them the deals. But when you look at density wise for a single family portfolio, uh, it really depends on what their exit strategy is going to be. But in this area, you can make some killer cash. 
And the good thing about this area is we can find some older owners that still have 30, 40, 50 single family homes that are at that point where they're ready to exit. And we can take down some pretty good deals. Um, so it really depends on the strategy. But it, it, if you're looking at multifamily units from a density standpoint, um, for me, I don't think it makes sense to go into a new market unless you're ready to pick up 40, 50 doors at one time. Um, and sometimes it has to be multiple properties, but um, it just takes a little bit more work. But I see a lot of what you're talking about coming to this area. And there's lots of areas like this across the Midwest. The problem is it's hard to find the right team. It's, it's hard to find, you know, like in Dayton, Ohio, there's like 4,670 realtors, right? And everybody's an expert. Everybody's the best realtor. Of course, everybody's the best realtor in this market, right? Like anybody can sell a house in this market, okay? Like let's wait a couple of years so the market pulls down and let's see where the real players fall out at. But it's hard to find the right realtor that is truly in the game, that is an investor themselves, that knows the off-market game, that can find you deals that nobody else will bring to you. And I think that's the number one piece that you got to figure out is what market has that, what market has somebody that that can really help us close those deals and work as a partnership and, and isn't a greedy asshole. Uh, you know, sorry for my language, but that's yeah, that's the unfortunate part about real estate is who is who doesn't have that greed that's willing to work together and and help solve a common solution for for a client. Are you seeing the the big funds like Blackstone and you know, are they coming in and buying up the single family homes up by you? No, not necessarily. Um, not that big. We do have some hedge funds that are in this area that are buying up some stuff. Um, we don't have anybody quite that big, but they'll come. They came last time. Uh, and, you know, we'll see them. But, but we do have some, we do have some larger hedge funds that, that are here and they're buying some things up and we kind of see them pop in. And, you know, I'll tell you, my phone has been going crazy. Like I'm getting at least a dozen messages, text messages a day. Um, like, hey, this is so-and-so for whatever properties. And I'm sure you guys get them all the time too, right? But you know, are you interested in off-market deals? And I'm like, okay, so if they're paying per text message, let me see how many text messages I can get them to reply to because I'm bored tonight. Um, and I'll just sit there and have a little fun with them. So, uh, but we see, you know, we're seeing a lot of that. So there is a lot more attention, you know, a lot more attention on this area. Um, and I think the reason is because a lot of people were drawn to Columbus and Cincinnati. Like Columbus is like, you can still find deals up there. My partner actually moved from Reno to Columbus. He's up there now. But Columbus is pretty much tapped out, okay? You're not finding the deals up there. Cincinnati, you can still find some deals, but it's starting to get to that point where it's tapping out a little bit. So everybody's moved into more of the tertiary. Uh, somebody say the word, I can never say it. Becca, you probably can say it. What's uh, Tertiary. Tertiary markets, there you go. <laughs> I didn't even know what you were going for. There you go. So that's like, everybody's kind of started moving into those markets. And, and even us in the Dayton area, what we've done is we've started looking at some of our suburbs, right? Um, so like, where do we go 20, 30 miles outside of our city and start looking at the suburbs. And that's where we've taken some of our clients is like, hey, let's go over and like, let's go to a town that has a population of like 30,000 people and let's just take over the town. Like we can do it. So that's what we've been doing. We've been going to some of the smaller cities with like one client and buying up 50, 60, 70 doors, you know, from a lot of the old owners that are in those towns. Um, so we've kind of pushed ourselves out of our city as well too. And we're kind of picking, right? Like we're cherry picking different communities. And this is, it's been a really cool process for us because I said two years ago to one of my one of my buddies, I said, man, I would love to go to that city and just take it over, right? Like it's so small, like let's just buy every street, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's what we said. So now we're in that place where we have some of these clients coming to us, especially some of our Israeli buyers and they don't know the difference between Dayton or, or Riverside or a place called Pickle or whatever, just like you guys don't. You know Dayton, but outside of that, eh, probably not. 
So we go to these towns and we're buying stuff for super, super cheap. And we'll buy like 30, 40 homes for them or multifamily properties. Or we'll buy a whole street of duplexes and we're having some huge, huge success. Um, and now that I said that all your buddies are going to start calling me and our deal numbers are going to go up. Well, you know, that what you're doing is, is precisely what and why I asked about Blackstone, Divco West, these huge funds, they're, they're creating their own markets. They're going yeah. in and they're buying hundreds and hundreds of single family homes in these smaller towns. And they literally are establishing the comp, controlling the comp. You know, there's, uh, it's an interesting model, but that, that's what's happening now. Um, is there, uh, do you play it all on the commercial side, meaning actual commercial office retail? Uh, I'm curious what's happening on that side of, of, of the business. Yeah. So I transitioned towards the end of last year, I transitioned and I started buying some true commercial spaces myself, um, mainly because our market like took a huge dip, right? Like during COVID, I mean, everybody lost renters. Um, so we saw that a lot of commercial owners were struggling. So I started buying up a couple commercial buildings. Um, matter of fact, the one I'm sitting in right now, we're building our real estate office out in, it's a 18,000 square foot building and it's beautiful. Like I wish I could spin the camera around, need a little bit of work, but we're, you know, we're doing a $200,000 renovation to build our real estate office in. Um, but even this one we bought for 225,000, it was owner financed, um, all except for 25,000 with 3% interest over three years. Right. So it was like no brainer. You know, I have 4,000 square feet that's rented out for 4,000 bucks a month already. And I have another 4,000 square feet that I'm just like, I don't care if I rent it out or not because it's paying the bills right now. Um, you know, then we're going to take some upstairs area that we're not building into real estate office, uh, turn those into Airbnbs because we're super close to the Air Force Museum. Um, so we're just trying some really cool things. And the commercial office space, that's what I'm looking at right now is like, how do I convert those to multifamily? How do I convert them to luxury Airbnb? Um, so we, you know, I'm, I'm big about playing the waves and the commercial space right now is struggling. And I don't know what you guys are, are seeing up in your way, but you know, when the multifamily market tightens up, like what else can I buy? And that's kind of the, the mindset that I'm in right now. Yeah. So, uh, we were a brokerage that, that, you know, started as boutique homes and we now do everything consulting, very strong residential and really, really strong commercial because it's counter cyclical oftentimes and and you know what we teach our team here is if you're going to take the time to earn the trust of a client work both sides of the book because many many times they're going to have both sides of the book and it doesn't make any sense to us to put that time and energy in and not to work both sides of it but it's if you're putting elbow grease in here you're doing well with your commercial and if you're not busting your hump with the commercial side you're in trouble because the regulation stacking, taxes are going through the roof. It's becoming very, very, very difficult. And um, you've got to work it. If you're working it, you're doing great. And if you're not, it's tough right now. Yeah. So have you seen the, I, you know, and I, I watch a lot of, um, a lot of posts that you guys have out there with your different realtors that are, you know, listing properties or buying properties. So I see a ton of the commercial stuff you guys are doing. Are, have you seen the prices with your commercial space drop or those still stand stable up where you guys are at? If in it's center specific, literally it's center yeah, specific. It if the owners are listening and they're allowing us to put in great marketing campaigns and they're allowing us to break the spaces up and they're allowing us to get creative where we're doing really well. Yeah. I mean, and those who yeah. are not are sitting with big empty 
dark shells of these, you know, 25, 30,000 square foot tenants that are never, ever coming back, not in this market or any other market. Um, and you've got to get creative. You know, you got to really, you really have to hit it. So I would say overall, most of the rents have come down a good bit. Yeah. Uh, but so. in, in a few centers where they're hitting it hard, they're, they're holding steady. Todd, what's the employment base? So we have like currently where I sit right now with this, this building that I'm in and where I live at, uh, we have a huge military population because mm -hmm. uh, we have the Air Force Base here, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, we have the National Air Force Museum. Um, but in Dayton, it really is a melting pot, man. Like we have so many things going on. I mean, we have Fuya, which is a big glass manufacturer. Um, up by the Dayton International Airport, we have um, tons of large manufacturing companies that have come in, you know, a um, couple battery, battery places, uh, some, some pet food, you know, places that are, they're making, I mean, we just have so many different businesses that are out there. So there's not, there's not one base. If, the, if there was one specific job that I would say brings a lot of people in, it's the military. Outside of that, it's, it's just a working city, right? I mean, you know, we have a hospital, we have one of the largest trauma centers, Miami Valley Hospital. Uh, my wife is an ICU nurse there. Um, so that is right in the center of Dayton, has its own zip code. And uh, we have a, a huge medical population that's right there. But uh, there's so many things going on in Dayton, like whatever you want to do, you can do if you come to Dayton for work, you know, other than anything that has to do with being on a boat in an ocean on, or sand or anything like that. Well, as I had mentioned earlier, we have a, a, a partner and a client um, that we do a lot of work with. And there's four million, maybe five million in uh, Opportunity Zone and exchange accounts just sitting there about to time out. If you come across anything of size, please keep us in mind. We're down to like the last 30, 30 days or so, yeah, maybe a little bit more yep. uh, with the OZ stuff, but uh, we are looking to, to make a move here. So please keep us in mind. I, I think your story is amazing. I love what you did and uh, keep it up, man. Best of luck. How do people, how do people get a hold of you? What's the best way? Oh, probably, probably Instagram. I'm on there the most. Yeah. Todd Polt's official uh, or TikTok. I mean, I'm a big TikToker. I like TikTok. Uh, so, you know, that's the easiest way. I'm on Instagram quite a bit. I'm on bigger pockets, uh, TikTok, uh, Facebook from time to time, but you know, any of the social media sites. And I reply to everybody. Like I have people reach out from all over the country. And I guess that's one of my flaws is like, I, I never want to be that guy that, that doesn't respond. So I respond <laughs> to everybody, even if it's the craziest messages, I, I reply to every comment um, that takes up a big part of my week. So um, yeah, if they reach out to me there, that's that's the easiest way. All right, man. Todd, really appreciate the time today. Thank you very much. Thank no, thanks for having me on. I appreciate being with you guys. Stay safe.